0: Welcome to Empowered by Women for Women. This podcast brings you inspirational women and their stories, their successes, and their experiences along the way. Join us to be challenged and inspired, brought to you by Am Vintage and hosted by myself, Trudy Kerr. This is not the first time that I've interviewed today's guest. Many years ago, I interviewed Dr. Lara Dmitrievich on t- a TV show in a discussion about women's rights and empowering women. Lara Dmitrievich is a founding partner at Shiberis Associates. Lara obtained her doctorate from the University of Malta in November 2008 and was admitted as a member of the Maltese Bar Superior Courts of Malta in February 2009. Dr. Dmitrievich specialises primarily in family law and has worked extensively on immigration cases. Lara is a frequent speaker on matters related to domestic violence and other family-related matters. She's acted as a visiting lecturer and an examiner at the Faculty of Laws, University of Malta. Laura also leads the Women's Rights Foundation, which is a voluntary organisation committed to informing, educating and empowering women concerning their legal rights. Lara has also been a blogger with the Times of Malta, covering topics that relate to women and women's well-being. If anyone in Malta really does care about women and the destiny of women, it is my extraordinary guest, Lara. Laura, thank you so much for being on Empowered. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Trudy.
0: <laughs> I have so many questions for you, but let's start off with your journey. How on earth did you get to where you are today? There are so many things that you've done throughout your career. There's so many things that have been so beneficial to other people, but you've been so focused on helping women, women's rights, and of course, immigration as well. We talked, touched on that. How did you get there?
1: Oh, you know, to be honest, I I often reflect, how did I get there? I don't know. Um... Am I doing what I always know and, you know, what I usually do? Yes, I am. You know, I think from a very young child, I've always been, you know, active and and took interest in, in, you know, things that happened around me. And as I was growing up, I kind of felt, you know, whenever something was not right, I was a bit rebellious. So I would actually rebel. And I was, I remember being back in sixth form. So we're talking sometime around 1991. Um, and you know, we did a hunger strike. We locked ourselves in. I got myself arrested. You know, we, like, this uh, is here in Malta. Here, yes, yes, yes. This was here in Malta. So you know, I'm like was I was spearheaded this whole uh, protest, you know, legal protest. So we've had fire engines, you know, like police all oh over us. Oh my word! So kind of, you know, it's always been there. Um, yeah. Then started uni at 18. Before you go there, mm-hmm. this is a hunger strike, a protest. Yeah. You were 16. I was
0: 16. And what was the outcome?
1: Uh, well, uh, the outcome was, well, basically we were fighting for something really basic, which was like, you know, do recognize our work throughout the year, you know, you know reflect that in our end of year results and our A-levels, because I mean, then what's the point of giving incentives to attend lessons? So sort of, we really wanted that, you know, give us an incentive to actually make the lessons meaningful. So yeah, I mean, after many years, I mean, the outcome was a bit positive, at least we have promised that changes are going to come, but yeah, it did take many years. And now that I've got my younger one, who's 11 years old I can actually see it happen and I thought oh my goodness it took me what 30 years to get that the is amazing <laughs> so, yeah that's incredible
0: yeah so then at 18 you fast forward 18 two years. You're I went to university
1: trouble. um yeah well then it, the, the trouble was a bit different this time around you know I <laughs> met my husband today 26 years down the line <laughs> we're still together and I got pregnant so then, you know, I kind of like called the quits. I, you know, thought, you know, let me do the single mom thing. And he said, no, and he stayed. And oh my God, like he's still here. That's beautiful. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, then kind of I, I, I could never just sit either. So I've got, had the child for three months, went back and I started teaching English to foreigners. You know, then I wanted it to be a bit more challenging. So I was teaching d- dyslexic students English, which is an absolute nightmare because there are absolutely no rules in the language. So I always wanted that challenge. Went to university and I thought, okay, now it's time to do something.
0: But what, at what point then did you go to university? How old were you I
1: was then uh, 22 and I already had my second child. So, yeah. Are you
0: serious? Um,
1: yeah, I am dead serious. So you've, you got married? He got married because he was Serbian, so I'm not gonna pay ten Maltese pounds every month. You know, it was convenient to get married. <laughs> I'm sure he's got a visa to stay. So yeah, that was the that was the idea behind it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like I don't know how. 26 years he's been here. <laughs> fantastic! You've got um, your second child. You're 23 years
0: old, and you decide you you'd be. You've had your, uh, yeah, your time what, teaching. Yeah, you know, I've done
1: this for seven years. I said, I'm, you know, maybe something for something a bit different now, um, and so I wanted to go and study speech therapy. Actually, that's another story in itself. And so I had applied and I was waiting because I didn't have my biology level, and so I was waiting for the appointment, you know, to to be given an interview. So I studied, you know, my biology is just to show I'm well prepared, and the interview never came. I quit my job. September comes, October comes, so and I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? So I called the faculty, and they said, oh, we thought you were Russian trying to get into the course for free. I'm like, oh. you know, I thought, this is so unprofessional. This is because of your surname, no? It's because of the surname. And I said, if you had you bothered, you know, looking up my ID card, you know, calling me up for an interview, I mean, how can you reach that to, you know, conclude that? So I was absolutely, you know, that's it. I said, no, no. And a friend of mine... Um, had just applied for the law course, and so she said, come and join me. And I said, you know what? Okay. <laughs> and that's how the journey began, uh, the next part of the journey. So, yeah, doing the law course, um, started working as volunteering with the Jesuit Refugee Services, so I was working with migrants in detention centres. Why? Um, just because I, o- I loved voluntary work. I loved voluntary work. I loved working even prior to that, you know, just giving voluntary hours with children, um, you know, that come from... Perhaps you know needy families, so I always, I always had a drive for that. I always had a passion for you're it.
0: You're a mother of two, today three,
1: today three. But
0: at the time, you're a mother
1: of two mm-hmm. with a, a husband, and you're studying, and you're doing voluntary mm-hmm. work. And I used to go and spend a good six to eight hours in detention centres, primarily working with women and children. Um, it wasn't, you know, what many people found easy to do. When you have people that are literally locked up, when I say locked up, they're literally behind bars. Uh, and children, you know, with these little googly eyes and, and very vulnerable um, was not easy. Locked up, why? Because we had a mandatory detention policy. So they would be locked up for 12 months to 18 months. And that's something that I, I just, you know, I found that this is the place. And I started learning from these women. I learned so much, you know, I, things that I kind of, you know, felt, but they taught me so much. And, and I love, you know, I'd walk in there and they would call me, you know, Mama or, or the Queen, you know, you know, make you feel so... So welcome, you know, these little things. If it was just a little popcorn bag that they had, they would share with you. And, you know, I started learning, uh, kind of learning from each other, you know, how to make coffee, grind the coffee, have little conversations, you know, go into the culture. And I started learning about the terrible journey, how women were raped, how women were forced into prostitution, how women were sold, how I saw girls in the centres themselves being abused and I said, you know, no, I, I can't. I can't. I absolutely can't. So, anyhow, um, these were women from where? These we women move. were from primarily sub Saharan Africa. So, you know, the irregular migrants, basically, the ones arriving by boat. Um, So, yeah, so then I I finished the law course, that was in 2008, and I kind of said, okay, I needed to, I felt I needed to create something for myself, so after six years of studying, so that's when I founded the partnership, which I today have with my brothers, Um, and, you know, I kind of embarked on the journey of justice, which is, you know, going to the law courts, and I was absolutely horrified, I mean, the biggest injustice that I found for women was actually happening before my eyes. And I said, this is wrong. This is Why? just so wrong. What? Because I, I, you know, I started doing some small criminal work, you know, um, related to, you know, child support and, and child access. And, and, you know, then there were sittings related to domestic violence. And you could see that the woman, who was primarily is always the victim, was always attending court unaccompanied, not represented. And whilst the perpetrator would be represented with, you know, a big shot lawyer. And so there she is trembling. And I thought, you know, this is just so wrong. I absolutely, I, I was horrified by what I was seeing. Um, I'm not saying that the justice system did them wrong. It's just that there was this great imbalance and you could see the fear in their eyes. And so then that's when I said, OK, time to create something for yourself once again. And that's how I set up the Women's Rights Foundation. And this brings you right up to today. Yeah. And then that was another journey. And off we are. (laughs)
0: We're going to talk about the Women's Right Foundation in just a second. In an online video from 2020, in relation to a show called Alice in Wonderland, Land, you refer to the ongoing issue of the reality that dates back through history concerning women in society. This is exactly what you've just mentioned and the prevalence of violence against women, whether this is morphed into online cyber violence or whether it's physical violence, and you call for a rethinking. You've just mentioned there, and I can speak from personal experience, I relate exactly to a woman going to court and not understanding that she needs representation. How do we change? How do we even start changing? Let's start with the role of women And gender construction. As you mentioned this yourself, it's been an issue throughout history. So, why, why in 2022 are we still talking about this? This is 2022. Why aren't we living in a fair and equal
1: society? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Yeah, (laughs) I like big questions. (laughs) That's a very big question. There are many reasons, I think, uh, why. Um, of course I, I mean I always turn onto the politician first and foremost, you need to have political win. There has to be political commitment. There has to be a true show and um you know commitment to, to say yeah we want our society to become gender equal, you know, and, and acknowledge that there is a need to move to move towards. And I say this because, of course, we now, at least in in, in Malta, we have now worked towards the gender equal representation in Parliament. So we're kind of tackling these little bits. We've had a whole discussion on femicide. You still have laws, for example, that are, um, you know, recognizing the head of household as being the husband. I mean, if you look at tax law, for example, it's still the same. I'm the sole breadwinner. My husband is the stay-at-home dad, bringing up a little one. Um, so I work very, very, very long hours, you know, and I work very hard for my money and we just got a tax rebate, which obviously went into my husband's account because he's still recognised to be as the head of household because that is what the law assumes. So these are just little examples, which although we are becoming more aware of them, you know, not enough is being done, at least from I, what I say, that p- political and legislative aspect. And again, it's also then society, you know, you then you have a whole community and society at large. Um, when you still have this idea, and I'm here, I'm not particularly putting pointing my finger towards men, but you know, also to to, to both agendas here, that women are the best carers for the children. When yes, you have now opened up and provided free childcare, and you know, opened up the labour market towards women, but when you still have women the only at least you know for the needs of the family can only work reduced hours or can only do certain kinds of jobs you know so not enough is being done in my opinion at least in this little insular island of ours to 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 wholly tackle that gender equal aspect and of course then you have other Powers, and I call them powers. I mean, if you look around us, the world around us, let's go to far right. And the far right is flourishing at the moment. It started off with, um, you know, Turkey. In Turkey, women were being arrested, academic women, feminists were being arrested and detained. Um, if you go to Poland, Poland now has not only, you know, gone back in in its abortion law, which has made it more restrictive, but actually has created free gay zones. You then go to Hungary, and again, you have Obran, who is, again, another far-right nightmare, and the EU at the moment is discussing on creating sanctions towards Hungary because of what's happening. And then you go to the West, you know, America, let's not mention Donald Trump. So you have this kind of, um, um, you know, again, this this movement that goes around you that would just, maybe just a few years, I mean, Donald Trump was there for five years, I mean, the damage he has caused and the way he has rolled back the times, you know, and then you kind of start, start getting a ripple effect. Other things are, um, you know, social media. Social media is huge. You know, everybody lives in social media. Everybody's on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And just look at the comments. Just absolutely look at the comments. I mean, we have now accepted the situation of this normalized um, commentary towards, you know, degrading. I I actually find it degrading and very insulting commentary. Um, And kind of that, you know, because it becomes so visually always there it can it, it makes it a bit not a bit I would say it makes it very normalized and very accepting so there are many many factors
0: when you talk about social media let's be a little bit more specific you're talking about comments In yes what the comments si- what situation what kind of comments I mean you for think? me
1: I think one of the worst comments that I often see are related to rape cases for example just look at a rape case and it's incredible the comments that you find there of, oh, yeah, she asked for it. Oh, yeah, she's the slut. Oh, yeah, she deserved it. And this kind of commentary, like, you know, know, must have been a good fuck. Like, it's that bad of a commentary. So this is something that, yeah, the next generations, I mean, I'm, I'm sure very few and far between actually now go beyond reading of a headline, you know, reading of a newspaper article, and then at least looking into the commentary of the newspaper article, which is, you know, monitored, it's then on Facebook, for example, it's absolutely free for all. It,
0: wouldn't, it would seem that it's not in the male gender's best interests to empower women and to give women equal rights and an equal say, because there's so many advantages to keeping women where they're at. Would that be a fair statement?
1: Um, it would be a fair generic statement. Um, it would be a statement that was very reflective up to, you know, not so long ago. And when I say not so long ago, even a century ago, let's not forget, you know, the women's right to vote in this country. Um, we've just, I believe, you know, got not, haven't even been there for a century. Um, so, so yes, you know, it, it is a generic fair statement. I would say that perhaps with Certain changes and certain acceptance, it might not be so accurate in certain areas. But yes, all in all, it's not. I mean, you know, again, women are very generalizing here. But look at male politicians, for example. I think this last election was very, very telling. You know, don't vote for the women because they'll come in just the same. Women giving up the seats for the male politicians. So, yeah. You also mentioned in this snippet from 2020, this video
0: snippet, violence against women. And now in a previous episode of this show, it was identified that violence against women and children took a huge upward turn over the COVID period. And this is something that you've mentioned already that's on your agenda. Is this still an issue? Is this, was this a real issue over COVID? Was there a real rise
1: well, it's, it's interesting to see how I would say it, it's in a way, yes, but not in terms necessarily of women being able to leave. So, yes, it, but it got worse. I mean, at least the reporting and, and even, you know, the caseload that we got, it did get worse. Because women were stuck indoors 24-7, so there was no space. So even if they could not leave the door simply because would, you know, they were not allowed to leave the door, there was, yes, that increase. Rape increased during this period. Yeah, there was an increase in rape. There was an increase in marital rape. There was an increase in forced pregnancies. Um, Sorry, here in Malta? Yes, here in Malta.
0: Why am I hearing this for the first time, marital because rape and forced marriage marital rape,
1: I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of those taboo subjects we don't really talk about that we don't acknowledge, no. Um, but it's very existent and it's very illegal because we recognise marital rape as being all um, equally a criminal offence. But it's not something that is often recognised. But yes, of course, there has been an increase. And has been increased. I mean, COVID brought a situation where, you know, ultimately, when you talk about violence, you're dealing about a a scenario of power and control where a person is constantly exerting power. So imagine being stuck 24-7 in that environment. I mean, you know, women came and sort of expressed their, you know, living literally in a house of horror, your home being, which has been the house of horror, of course, before, but this is a 24-7 house of horror. It's like one of those escape rooms that never ends for days.
0: So as we leave this COVID season, are we seeing
1: an aftermath? What's happening now? In Well, it depends on where we, what we're we seeing now. I mean, what it definitely has seen in this, um, you know, potentially, I would say, started last year is women have been more in range and women have had more, you know, more courage to leave. So we did see an increase in demand for separations and for divorce. Uh, so it was like just enough. Um, what we also saw is that now the demand is so huge because now they're being able to leave. Okay, you have to remember that having to leave the home at that point in time during COVID meant that I would have to quarantine for two weeks in isolation, stuck in a room, you know, potentially of two by two with my children until I do my quarantine period to be able to actually then join the women in the shelter. So that was not easy at all. It was not easy to, to even just leave the home, given that you had those 24-7, you know, constant lockdown situation. So I think now it's it's become easier for them in terms of it's become more empowered, that now they can leave and now that they don't have to, it's already difficult enough having to leave home, but at least they don't have to face the whole ordeal Um, that comes with, you know, just seeking refuge. Mm, mm. Um, So it's easier now to access police stations and the police headquarters to file your report. Um, The courts are back functioning. So kind of, yeah. So what we're seeing is we're seeing an increase now.
0: You also mentioned in this clip from 2020 that violence is not limited to physical violence, that violence has morphed um, and that we're dealing with cyber violence and bullying and it's much harder to identify we've had this conversation on the show before there are some kinds of treatment and violence that is harder to identify because cyber violence might take place on a phone it might look like you're having a a normal conversation is that what we're dealing with now how has that morphed into a new era
1: I don't think it's a matter of morphing. I think it's a matter that it has always existed, okay? So, I, you know, although I talk about violence against women, I use the word violence, I rather use the word coercive control because ultimately this is what we're talking about. So where you have a situation of violence that could escalate and manifest itself in a physical or a sexual manner, we know that more often than not, whatever br- led to the physical and sexual was very psychological, emotional. Gaslighting, mentally abusive. So this is what we are talking about, and for me, this is what the coercive control is. No, isolating a person, humiliating the person, belittling the person. You know these constant little things. We have become more aware of that. So whereas prior, the women might have felt discouraged of how am I going to prove that I have been psychologically abused? You know, Mm. I think we have as we in general have become more aware of that. And, and, you know, it's a bit more encouraging of saying, look, don't worry, you know, like people are now more understanding to to what you're going to say. And, you know, ultimately, I was tell the women and believe in yourself, you know, you are genuine in what you're saying. You know when a person is genuine and when a person is not. Um, so don't worry about it. So so, yeah, I think we are more aware of this controlling Um, subtle controlling behaviour, which is referred to as the coercive control, which is now also recognised in the law, you see, that's another advantage. So it is recognized at law. This is fantastic news. Yeah.
0: And this could take place either in person or it could take place online or, or any of those those things. But if you were it, it
1: manifests itself, yeah, in physical, um, you know, through telecommunication, through messages, so SMSs, it could be through um, yeah, cyber movement. Then you also have now we're recognizing cyber stalking, cyber harassment. And now we're also in the process of actually introducing these laws into our legislation as well, which is, again, another advantage of, you know, you can't say, oh, but this is there's nothing wrong in the fact that I'm receiving a barrage of messages on my Facebook messenger from an unwanted person, you know, which perhaps there's nothing explicit, there's nothing offensive, there's nothing threatening. But at the end of the day, they are unwanted, and that's what harassment is. You know, you are sending me something that is absolutely unwanted. I did not, I do not want you to. Um, so the fact that at least we're moving to, to see how legislation is actually recognising these forms of um, crimes is is very positive. In a moment, we're going to talk about the Women's
0: Right Foundation and what you're doing to help women in all of the situations I've just uh, mentioned from this very small small and short snippet of an interview. Uh, as I said in 2020, but before we go on there, I just want to touch once more on this cyber violence or or bullying or this this kind of intimidation that you mentioned. There, there may not be physical marks on a person. So if you are a loved one, if you are a family member, if you are a friend, how do you recognise this? Bullying in somebody else. How do you recognise that your your friend or your sister or your your daughter is being bullied?
1: Well, I would say that there are various ways. I mean, you would see it from just I would from the demeanour of the person, from the way the person starts to communicate back. Um, some people shut down, you know, or just have this blank stare in the face, like they're completely dead from the inside. Um, Some people actually talk about it or start giving subtle hints, and that's when it becomes a bit harder on us that are listening to this. Firstly, because it's a shock if it's a family member, you know, a denial. So there's another process that that family member or friend has to go through. Um, When sometimes it can actually be quite heavy, the bullying. So there are various ways of how it can be identified, But whatever it is, my advice always is, you know, be there and listen, be supportive. I know it's frustrating. More often, you know, it's not the first time I see a woman, like, oh, she got this far. And before I know it, she's gone back um, and she comes back. So it's okay. I trust women, trust your friends because they know, they know. and, And don't take charge of their situation. Give them that space to process to acknowledge, be supportive, and yes, do guide them to the authorities, to the support services that exist. But I find that to be very, very important. They always have been in a situation where they could not take decisions for themselves because they always had to do what their abuser told them to do. So don't do what the abuser does, you know. Listen, support, guide. I make sure you're always there, no matter how frustrating it is for you. That is incredible advice.
0: Well, listen, the Women's Rights Foundation is something that you spearheaded and set up because of what you'd seen and, and what the need was. And it aims to ensure that women's rights are protected through policy and legal reform, raising awareness and offering training to end violence and aggression towards women. What does all of that mean? What do you actually do and, and who is this available to? Okay,
1: so we do, uh, well, three things primarily. So we offer the legal support. Uh, we have a helpline, so we run a helpline. People can call us for free, um, leave their message. We call them back and they obviously it's important that they tell us if it's safe and what time we can call them back. We, this surface is offered in different languages, so it's not only Maltese and English, but we've got French, we've got Russian, we've got um, Arabic, and Tigrinya at the moment. So, um, so we, we believe that information empowers, and the more information has a, a person has about their rights, the, more, the better they are to actually make the decision of what's best for them. We also represent, so we have, um, you know, certain cases where particularly the most vulnerable and the most marginalized, so we do the pro bono work there, whether it's criminal or civil, so we represent them in court. We work with women in shelter, whether it's an emergency shelter or a second state shelter, so that is, yeah, mostly what the service is for. Anything dealing with violence against women, so not necessarily domestic abuse, but we also represent, um, also on pro bono basis, all victims of sexual abuse. Um, human trafficking, we've got 160 clients, victims of human trafficking. So, so that's, yeah, that's pretty much you that You have aspect.
0: 160 clients from human trafficking? Yeah. Women from human trafficking? Not all women, no.
1: That's the only area we, we support men we support too, men because, because there well. isn't, yeah.
0: And human trafficking means what?
1: Um, human trafficking means when a person is has been recruited. So whether it's you know brought to Malta to work for a you know to do a particular job um, for the purpose of exploitation. So we have it mostly in forced labour, like cleaning companies, hospitality industry, construction industry. I think that those are primarily the areas that we see. But then we have women that would have been forced into prostitution, even if they knew they were coming to work for prostitution, but then they end up being exploited. So, you know, locked up, no money. I mean, I think two of the worst cases I've worked were uh, with Chinese massage parlors and the women were literally kept locked in the room. They had not even a bathroom. So they would have to wash in a little bucket And sleep on the couch where they would have had to spend all day seeing 15 to 20 men. Or actually working for, I would say, a good 20 hours of seeing God knows how many men and no money. They could not keep any of the money. Today, all suffering from severe mental health. Slavery. 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 And domestic servitude, of course. That's even worse because it's even, well, it's not even worse. They're all bad, but this one is behind closed doors. So it's so very difficult to see. You know, it's so very difficult for them to, to get away from it because they are locked inside the house with the trafficker. So, yes, let's go back to. Well,
0: <laughs> the, the, I mean, but Lara, you know, you're bringing attention to issues that I and probably most people listening to this would have thought existed in other countries, but probably not in Malta.
1: No, no, it's very existent, here. It's very existent, yeah. And to be honest, I was worried when I could see that during the COVID, well, (laughs) we're still going through the COVID period, but what I refer to as the COVID period, the initial lockdown, um, you know, when I could see that we are still bringing in migrant workers. So when everything is locked down, we're still bringing migrant workers. And you tend to see the trends of where the migrant workers are being brought from. You have, you know, people being brought from Nepal. So we know what the situation there is. India, um, again, the cases, most of the clients that I have come from the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia. So very vulnerable countries. Colombia, Venezuela is war-stricken, you know. So when you start seeing that we're getting migrants from these areas, and obviously with my experience of working in that area of trafficking, it does raise a lot of alarm bells and massive sirens.
0: And all of this is happening on this tiny, tiny island, in this tiny, tiny country. Yep. How, Laura, do we change? How do we change this?
1: I think, again, here on this matter, like any other matter, I will always go back to the politician. Mm. You see, you need to constantly take a zero tolerance approach. This is not acceptable. We need to you know, make our labour laws stricter, um, we need to put a stop to exploitation and, you know, closing a blind eye.
0: We need to do it, but how do we do it? Because hold them accountable.
1: Not- I say, hold them accountable. That's it, accountability. I have, you know, that's it. You do wrong. If you are well, an authority, and we have done also, it's talking about, you know, Women's Rights Foundation. If an authority has not done what it's duty-bound to do as a state... Yeah, you hold them accountable, and we took a number of human rights cases to the constitutional courts, which we have won, and the authorities were held, um, or rather, were found that they were responsible for the breach and violations of the individual's rights. So yes, accountability. You know, let's raise awareness. Let's scream.
0: So, if anybody's listening to this who is as outraged by what you've said as I am, what can we do? What can I do? What can I do? As- Talk about it.
1: Talk about it. You have, I think in your case, you have the most powerful tool, which is this. <laughs> um, but talk about it. We need to talk about it. We need to, you know, raise the, the awareness about it. We need to understand how real it is. We need to understand what the impact is. You know, we need, and I feel this is something that I take upon myself. I always feel I need to bring their voices Whoever, whoever woman I, and, and person I ever helped, I want to bring their voices. That's the least I can do. You know, they give me so much energy. They give me so much pride when I just see them getting out, you know, with their smiles and just moving on with the rest of their lives. I'm humbled by it. They are heroes, absolutely. So the least I can do is actually, you know, use my voice, To bring their voice.
0: Listen, Lara, I'm going to call you a shero. I love (laughs) that term. I've never heard it before. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to finish on a completely different note because you obviously dedicate your life to helping others and helping others in these extraordinary situations that we've been talking about. And I'd love to say they're extraordinary, but what it actually sounds like is that they're more regular than we will appreciate. And I'm imagining that this would take a huge toll on you as a person I'm going to finish by asking what do you do to unwind to switch off to digest what you've seen the good and of course the bad
1: well first of all I love cooking so cooking is something that I can do for hours on the weekend and I just graze my mind and I also have a little plot of land in Serbia. My husband's from Serbia. Um, so it's just there in the middle of nowhere. My neighbors are sheep and cows. And in summer, I just go there and it's just beautiful. I just feel like Heidi running in the mountains. I'm completely cut off and that's where I recharge. So yeah, and of course my family, they're always, always there with a smile and it's just fantastic.
0: Laura, thank you so much for being on Empowered. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for opening my eyes and everybody else's eyes. And we will continue to do this. I'm absolutely blown away and I'm thrilled and grateful that you came and shared this with us on this show.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Trudy. Can I cry? (laughs)